Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I am Elizabeth. I'm excited to have you here. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different from something that I've done before because I feel like a lot of the times around here we're talking about really serious topics, right? We're talking about really like important, serious, sometimes medical tinged issues about the sport that we love and the mental aspects of it and health issues and medical, all these things that can add up to be something that's a little bit more serious. But today I want to talk to you about, share with you some of the worst running advice that I have seen as a professional, as a running professional. Um, I'm not making any of this up. I swear to God, this is all genuine advice that I have either seen someone provide or someone has tried to usually mansplain to me (laughs) about. Um, Some of it will be obvious why it's wrong. Some of it will go through and explain why it's wrong. One of the interesting things about terrible advice is that it's not necessarily always 100% incorrect. It's usually just misunderstood and then misapplied and then kind of twisted out of shape, right? So one of the things, you know, if I were to tell you a patent falsehood, right? If I were to say one the best way to train for a running race is to go biking, like that's clearly terrible advice and also obviously not true. But then you kind of say, well, you know, biking is not bad to help supplement your running. That's not technically 100% incorrect. So that's actually a pretty benign example. It's not even terrible advice. The best way to train for a running race, by the way, is not biking. Um, Although biking can have a place in your training. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you shouldn't bike at all. But some of this is just, oh God, you know, the internet's a wild place. And the fact that some of the, this kind of, I'm not even going to call it advice. I'm going to say words mashed together in sentences is being offered as advice sometimes is downright you know, it's humorous to ranging to downright dangerous. So um, before we get started in this, hopefully, like I said, somewhat lighthearted episode, I do want to remind you that fall training groups for half marathons and marathons are currently still open. If you are running a half marathon or a marathon in the later half of the fall season, that is going to be half marathon group two and marathon group two. And additionally, if you're interested in training in it with a group for the Dopey Challenge, there's more information about that on the website and in my story. So please join us in our group setting so you can learn all about training, not only for your upcoming goal race, but just more about training principles, nutrition, education, pacing, the science of running in a group environment. We're also going to make some friends. It's really fun. So, all right, here we go. I have the worst pieces of running advice that I have come across. Some of this is actually verbatim. Um, and some of this is more about something to the effect of. So hold on to your hats because here we go. The best way to become a better runner is to run as fast as you can for as long as you can every single time you run. And every single time you go for a run, you try to run a little bit farther or a little bit faster. And that's how you know it's working. I mean, if you've listened to any other episodes on this podcast, if you haven't yet, please go back and listen to many of the episodes on this podcast uh, that discuss why that doesn't work. That's not true. Um, This is a really great way to get burned out and to hate running. First of all, um, that sounds miserable. (laughs) Just like right off the bat, that sounds miserable. I understand, of course, as having been a new runner myself, understanding that when you're new, like everything feels hard and you're not quite sure how long you can go for. So to be honest, The kernel of truth in this bad advice is kind of just born from the natural experience I think a lot of new runners have when they start running, especially when they're adults, 
and it's kind of born out of the, well, I, I kind of did that when I first started running and it ended up fine for me. Therefore that must work fine for you. Um, I'm, if you're, if you're still doing that though, I promise you, it's definitely not working for you. Like I said, yes, when you're new, everything's hard and you probably have no idea how far you actually can run. That's okay. You're not supposed to know you're new, but to do that as an actual training modality is not efficient, not effective. And like I said, only going to make you hate running, doing something all out like that for minutes at a time is miserable. That's not how running should be. Running should actually, even though when it's when, even when it's hard should still be relatively enjoyable. So my advice uh, on this bad advice would send me, actually, that's not what we want to do. Um, we want to make sure that we are slowing down so that we can run longer, not trying to run as hard as we can, as fast as we can, um, for as long as we can rinse, repeat. So, and like I said, the kernel of truth here is that actually that's how a lot of new runners get started and they do see progress, right? I don't know about you. The first time I went for a run, I think I ran a mile and a half. And then I think the second time I went for a run, no, the very first time I actually like went for a run, I didn't even do a mile. Right. But then I was like, okay, regrouped. Let me try again. Got my head on straight. You know, I, I can do this. I think I made a mile and a half. And then I think the second time I went for a run, I made it two miles, right? So obviously when you're brand new, it's easy to make those huge, like huge leaps just because anything technically will work. And it's more about the experience. Like you may have gained a little bit of fitness, but you've also kind of just gained some experience of like, oh, maybe I can run farther than I thought. The other thing that might be happening in this situation is that you are subconsciously pacing yourself, right? So um, very you, first of all, when you talk about running as hard as we can, the relationship between our effort, uh, our intensity, and our volume is, a, is an inverse one, right? So the higher your intensity, the shorter the duration has to be. You cannot hold very intense efforts for a long period of time. You just can't. There's a reason you can't sprint a 400-meter repeat. You can run a very fast 400 meter repeat, but a sprint can only be about seven to 11 seconds long, right? Think Usain Bolt. Think about the 100 meter dash. That's a sprint. Anything longer than that for most people, anything over that approximately 10 second mark, you're not actually sprinting. Anything that takes longer than that, you're technically pacing and even sprinters technically pace themselves. Anything longer than that, you are, whether you realize it or not, subconsciously pacing yourself to help you reach the end of whatever the duration is. So subconsciously, you might be running slower technically in that, in those other runs, or as you gain fitness at a lower effort, even though your fitness has increased to be able to run longer. So it's not to say that this advice or this terrible advice doesn't actually, if somebody were to do this, they might actually see quote unquote results in the short term, but not, not how I would recommend training for anything, even in the short term. Um, and definitely not as a long-term strategy, because like I said, one, that sounds miserable and two, uh, doing that much high intensity, high impact, um, is going to really raise your injury risk. Like when I say raise, I mean, send your injury risk skyrocketing. New runners are already prone to injuries at some, can somewhat higher rates than experienced runners, although runners of all experiences, you know, get um, injuries, but especially those like classic overuse injuries, like shin splints and IT band syndrome, and like the normal, like aches and pains, you feel like, oh, you know, a running related injury. Um, those are overuse injuries. And so when you go from, you know, sedentary to sprinting around your neighborhood four times a week, trying to get faster than the week before, like you are putting your body under an incredible amount of stress and you are, um, you are inviting bad things to come reside in your body that could have been avoided. So yes, this is terrible advice. The worst advice that you, (laughs) about training, do not attempt to train to become a better runner by running as fast as you can for as far as you can in order to increase your quote unquote stamina. That's not even, that's not even like how you do it. Um, and yes, if anybody has said this to you, you can say, you know, actually based on the principles of endurance training, we know that that's not the most effective way to train. And if that's how you are training, you'd probably get better results if you trained in a, in a way that included less 
super high intensity kind of arbitrary um, distances every single time. And I also, I mean, as an aside, I think that's one of the reasons that me personally, I hear from a lot of people who became runners later in life is that uh, almost all of us open with a story of, I was never a runner. I played some sports growing up, but I hated having to run the mile in gym class. And like, I'm not kidding. I, I hated having to run the mile in gym class. It was awful. And for the longest time, I thought that's what running was. I thought running was supposed to be the worst thing ever. Why would anybody do that for fun? It sucked. It hurt my lungs. It hurt my body. I was red faced and sweaty. Why would anybody do this for their hobby? Just turns out I was, you know, when we were young, nobody told us how to run, um, running everything way too hard. So Yes, obviously now that <laughs> I I have learned that's not what running is supposed to feel like. Um, yes, but understanding that that's not how running is supposed to go. There are different, much, much better ways. So terrible advice. That is not how you become a better runner. A similar piece of terrible advice, which is kind of just a misunderstanding of the phrase and it's misapplied in a lot of situations because there's very little space for nuance and inflection on the internet, is that you should you need to learn how to push past the pain. If you're in pain, you need to dig deep and just keep going. Okay. In some situations, yes. Yes, absolutely. In other situations, no, you need to stop. Where is the differentiation? There's a difference between being in Physical discomfort because you're pushing yourself to your absolute limit in a race, right? Or in a hard workout or you're doing something that you, you know, it's supposed to be hard and you really want to stop and it, it, your lungs are burning or your legs are burning and your brain's telling you to stop. That's very different from physical, actual injury pain, right? So the difference between here is that are you hurting or are you hurt, right? So, you know, you can be at mile 23 of a marathon and yeah, it quote unquote is hurting. You are, you know, at your limit. You have still have three miles to go. You are exhausted and kind of just running on, you know, heart and faith at this point. You have gotten this far. Yes, everything hurts and you're dying, but you're going to keep going no matter what. That is a very different situation from being on a run where you are experiencing a physical injury. You are hurt because you are hurt, right? So that is a very different you know, racing situation, or to be honest, any part of a 5k, <laughs> I ran a 5k a couple weeks ago. And within the first quarter mile, my brain was trying to bail on me. <laughs> my brain was like, you know, this is really hard. We don't have to do this. Um, I finished it, had a good race, but that's, that's a very different story. That kind of like, this is just a very hard effort. And it's, it's, I am hurting. I am in anguish. I am, you know, pushed to my absolute limit here. That is an entirely different pain than the one you were experiencing if you're actually like, ow, my ankle hurts or ow, my hamstring hurts or ow, my back hurts when I'm running, right? So physical injury is very, very different from the anguish of hard efforts. One of the, um, I want to say one of the skills, but one of the things that as runners who chase performance goals, not every runner does. Most, there are a lot of runners out there who run just because they enjoy running and don't give a fig about specific times or racing at all. But if you are a runner who chases performance goals, the kind of elusive, uh, how hard can I possibly push myself until I find my true limit? Where is the physical line? Where is the mental line? Where is that line? Because technically, I mean, there, your mind is your body, your body is your mind, all this stuff. How hard can I push myself into that pain cave, into that place of suffering where I'm literally giving it everything I have? And then even more, that is something that as somebody who chases performance goals, we are trying to cultivate. We are trying to push past that discomfort of racing, of high intensity, of hard effort, or it doesn't have to be um, high intensity. Ultras are run at relatively low intensity compared to shorter races. And yet I think that those are some of the most um, anguishing, suffering, full of, you know, points in time where all you want to do is just stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop the ride I want to get off. But again, those are very different situations. Learning to push, push past that kind 
of pain, hurting compared to being hurt, right? If you're hurt, stop, go see a physical therapist. Don't accept that what you're experiencing is, is, it might be common, but it's not normal and it's not okay. You deserve to run pain-free. So if you are thinking, well, I've just been told that I should push, learn to push past the pain and like my knees will stop hurting. No, it's okay. This is not the kind of pain you're supposed to be pushing past. That's okay to go seek help from a sports medical professional to actually address what the issue is. And it could be, you know, one of many things, um, but please don't ever push past the pain of actually being injured compared to the just pure discomfort that we may feel when we are in certain situations. So yeah, very, very, very important distinction here. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Sometimes it can be hard to tell if somebody is trolling or genuinely offering bad advice, like as a serious opinion. Um, I had somebody comment on one of my posts to the effect of uh, it was about marathon recovery because we know that running a marathon, even when you're well-trained, is very hard on your body and takes several weeks, if not longer, to properly recover. And uh, this person's comment was to the effect of, if you require that many weeks to recover after a marathon, you you have no business running marathons in the first place. Um, I am not a violent person, but that made me very angry on the inside because it is not only such an elitist, wrong, gatekeeping, snide, snarky comment. It's also wrong. Like, it's just wrong. Um, I can get away with somebody having, holding poor, you know, bad advice and they keep it to themselves. But if they try to tell me um, something that I know is incorrect, that's going to be a problem. It is generally true that people with a relatively lower level of overall fitness may require more recovery time from very hard efforts compared to people who have a relatively high level of fitness, right? So for example, if running a marathon for you uh, is, you know, uh, would that that distance is a significant portion of your weekly volume, right? That's probably going to have you require a little bit more recovery time than somebody who for whom running a marathon is like a quarter of their weekly volume in an average training week. However, running a marathon is still hard no matter how fit you are. It's always hard, right? So one, I believe that almost anybody can train for and race a marathon safely. I genuinely do. You know, at a variety of time, finishing times, absolutely, right? We're all different. But I believe there is no arbitrary cutoff for what you're allowed or not allowed to do when it comes to the choices you make about the training and events that you want to participate in. I would never tell somebody that they weren't fit enough to run a marathon because they required more recovery time, right? Because one, rude. Two, not true. What we know about marathon recovery specifically is that it actually takes a long time to properly recover from a marathon and even extending that to ultra marathons and triathlon events in even pro athletes, professional marathoners take significant time off for recovery, not just physical recovery, but mental recovery as well. Some people, yes, can be quote unquote fully recovered two to three weeks post marathon. Some people need six to eight weeks, right? But to say that you can't run a marathon or that you have no business running a marathon if you need X number of arbitrary weeks of recovery, which are the guidelines of recovery set out by what we know about how people respond to marathons. They do a lot of studies on marathoners. They take blood and muscle biopsies. They look at their insides. Um, That's just rude. That's terrible advice. So if you have heard somebody say that or something similar, that you have no business or you shouldn't be doing XYZ because of some arbitrary you know, number about recovery or pace or anything like that. Rude, also terrible advice. 
I will say another piece of advice that I have seen that is like kind of a flip side to this is that you only need to run the number of miles per week that your race distance is. This makes me a little anxious. So this would mean that you only need to run 26 miles per week to train for a marathon, 13 miles per week to train for a half marathon, six miles a week for a 10K. I think you know where I'm going with this. Um, I mean, there are some people who can get away with being able to finish a race distance off very low volume. One, they probably have a relatively high level of talent to begin with. Two, they're not going to have nearly as good of a race day experience or finishing time if they had actually maybe run a little bit more and trained properly. Do you need to run 85 miles a week? No, that's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying that that specific weird correlation is too low, too low for me. Um, You may not need for a, for a, a novice runner, you know, Marathon training plans are relatively low volume, but that is still going to put you in the 30, upper 30, possibly even low 40 mile per week range. And that's for the beginner plans, right? So that's not true. I think that anybody who knows anything about endurance running knows that they probably run far more per week than that um, weird piece of advice. I mean, I understand again where that where that may have come from because it sounds good, right? Like just because it sounds like it might work does not mean that it actually makes sense though. So um, again, not a good piece of advice to follow. You're probably going to need to and want to run more than that. Although, like I said, there are some people who can get away with finishing races on very low volume. You are That is not the norm. And most people are going to need to run more than the race distance per week in preparation for their actual race. This next piece of advice I'm kind of confused by. I've never I've never received this advice personally, but this is one of those things that I've seen floating around and I don't know if this is like a vestige from a time when everything was, you know, they were taking rat poison in in the marathon to try to run faster. Yes. It's like the 1904 marathon there were drugs involved. Not the good ones either. Um but that when you are fatiguing, lengthen your stride to keep your pace. Okay, first of all, um, no. What we know about stride length, first of all, even back up even further, is that your specific stride length and cadence is variable. You have your own optimal range of both of those things that changes depending on your pace, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But we do know that a higher general cadence, not putting a number on it, um, a higher cadence tends to be more efficient when it comes to how our body expends energy in the process of running. So I've gotten some questions about how does more footsteps make you faster or make you more efficient? Shouldn't that waste, well, first of all, it's not wasting, shouldn't that cost more energy? Um, no, not necessarily because nothing in your running stride happens in a vacuum. It's not just that you are increasing your number of footsteps. It's that has to do with the amount of force or power you generate with each footstep along with the stride length that you have and how much vertical oscillation that up and down bounce you have and the other things that you do in your body and your stride that also cost energy, right? So all of those things taken together can actually turn out that a higher cadence is overall more efficient than a lower cadence with a longer stride length. And I want you to think about being on a bicycle. And if you have a bicycle with gears on it, you know, you have low gears and you have high gears, right? So your low gears let you spin with relatively little resistance, right? You can spin very, very fast with very little resistance and your very high gears are very hard, right? They're very heavy and hard and takes a lot of effort and force. So if you think about your low gears as being a short stride length and your high gears as being a a long stride length, That is kind of gives you an idea of when you take shorter steps, you don't need to generate as much force with each one. Now, of course, with a longer stride length, you need to generate more force power to cover the distance between each footstep. 
yes, there are situations in which you do want to actively increase your, you know, power generators that your stride length can become longer. And that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the bad advice that when you start to get tired, you should increase your stride length. No, actually one of the best ways to kind of refocus yourself in a race when you're fatiguing is to work, make sure your cadence is staying high, make sure that your, your turnover is staying high because overall that will be more efficient for you from an energy cost perspective than bounding across the finish line with these giant steps. That's going to, that's going to make you fatigue even faster. Uh, and also that just will look absolutely ridiculous. So, you know, I don't know if you've heard that one before. I, like I said, I, I found that floating around and thought that's just not true. Um, and if so, if you've been thinking, first of all, that I need to run faster by increasing my str- consciously increasing my stride length, you know, bounding uh, big, long stride. No, not necessarily. You may need to work on actually increasing your cadence. Um, one of the ways that we tend to run faster in general actually is increasing cadence. You may notice that when you run at faster paces versus slower paces, your cadence goes up. And a big part of that increase in pace is just due to the fact that you're turning over more rapidly. Your stride length may also increase, but not nearly as much. Like, so you need, like I said, both of those together. It's not like that you run faster because your stride length increases. It's your cadence increases. Your stride length also goes up a little bit. Uh, so Yeah. Don't, don't, uh, don't start, don't start antelope bounding as soon as you start to fatigue. That's, that's do the opposite. (laughs) Just keep your cadence up, keep your turnover high, uh, and just hang on. Here's some truly bonkers. This is like dangerous advice, um, that I saw. Obviously it's summer and temperatures rise. I talk so much about hydration and electrolytes and the signs of heat stroke and what happens when you sweat and what sweating does your body is truly a fascinating thing. And, um, one of the, this is like, holy crap, where can I report you to the, you're going to hurt somebody, please. Um, was that, um, when you stop sweating in a race, it means you're not working hard enough because you should be sweating and working hard. First off, holy crap. When you stop sweating during a physical event, you are basically on the verge of heat stroke. (laughs) This is bad. This is bad. If this has happened to you, know that this is a very, very bad thing. It's one of those things where somebody's going to ask, is this really advice? Yes, I genuinely saw somebody provide this advice to somebody else about running a marathon in the heat. This doesn't necessarily just apply to marathons, though. You can get heat stroke. You can become dangerously overheated in any uh, event, even in relatively moderate temperatures. So one of the ways that your body works to cool itself off when it's hot or when you're working hard or when the both those things are happening simultaneously is it sweats and so it you know takes water from your blood plasma and it you know squeezes it out through your sweat glands through your pores and the evaporative action of the sweat you know being evaporated from your skin is an endothermic reaction that results in your skin temperature being cooler right so it uh, you know it helps regulate your body temperature it's part of your thermoregulatory process and it's actually really 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 important um when you stop sweating, if you have been sweating and then you cease to sweat, that is a massive red flag that you're about to or have already entered dangerous territory. Not normal, not a sign that you're not working hard enough. It means that you are basically, if you imagine like some sort of 1990s disaster movie where like, you know, the control room is going, oh my God, we've passed the point of no return. Like that's where you are. Um, It means that your core temperature has basically risen beyond a certain point and or you've basically become so dehydrated, you no longer have anything left to sweat. You're now in serious medical danger and you need to stop running and seek an aid station as soon as possible. If there isn't one near you, you need to stop, raise your hand, find a race official. You need to get immediate medical attention. I remember watching the 2019 uh, World Athletic Championships that they held in, I watched them on TV. They were in Doha in Qatar, an extraordinarily hot country. Uh, And they had to hold the marathon events at midnight because it was so hot during the day that it was unsafe. And even holding the events in the middle of the night 
It was dangerously hot for many of their participants. I think half of the women's field ended up dropping out. Um, Many of them said that they had stopped sweating relatively early on in the race. It was just so hot that they could not perform safely no matter what they did they had the race organizers had um frozen sponges and ice and water available like almost you know almost entirely throughout the course like you could grab an ice sponge almost you know every few uh, steps it seemed and yet that still um that was not enough to prevent them from a large number of the field from becoming dangerously overheated stopping sweating uh, and needing to drop out of the race. So that is like I somebody, I, I don't even know. I hope this person who was given this advice uh, did not listen to it. If you ever stop sweating during an event when you're running, especially when it's hot or even if it's only mildly warm out, that's a huge bad thing and you need to seek medical attention or at least just stop running <laughs> right away. Other bad advice in the same vein uh, is that stopping or needing to slow down for aid stations like water or fueling just takes away from time and you should just run the race without needing to stop for water or fuel. Um, mm. So in shorter events, you know, 5K, maybe even a 10K, you may not need to replace fluids, right? You're not necessarily, it's more about like comfort if it's really hot out you know, drinking some water can be nice, especially on those, you know, shorter, harder events. You don't need necessarily need to hydrate during a 5k to replace lost fluids and prevent dehydration. Um, so technically, no, you don't need to do that. Although if you can, I'm talking about seconds here. Uh, you totally can slow for water, stop for water. If you want to fuel, that's totally fine. I will say that in 2015, Mo Farah won the world championship 5,000 meter race and he like went from lane one to lane eight to grab a cup of water and came back in and he finished in 13 minutes and 50 seconds. That's fast. That's much faster than anybody I personally know can run 5,000 meters. Um, so if he can do it and you feel like you want to have some too, that's totally okay. In longer races, this is bad advice. Um, you know, even like I said, even elite runners are fueling and hydrating in those longer events, not, not drinking and not fueling, especially in multi-hour events like half and full marathons. Um, that's the terrible, terrible way to race. And think of it like, you know, like a car, like you need to top up fill up your gas every so often dehydration, especially, I know that we talk a lot about feeling on this podcast and fueling is absolutely important for your peak performance and your general health and a lot of other reasons. But, um, you're, you are going to be brought down by dehydration before you're going to be brought down by uh, lack of glycogen in most situations, right? So especially if you're not drinking water during multi-hour events, that is most likely an issue. And while you may be able to quote unquote, get away with not fueling in shorter long distance events, like a half marathon, I st- wouldn't recommend that. But if you're not, if you think that you shouldn't be drinking water or, you know, uh, hyd- hydrating electrolytes, you know, water and electrolytes, that is a terrible because it's you're worried about the impact of the time. You know, it's um it's strategic refueling. Maybe you lose a couple seconds here if you slow to, you know, uh, slow your pace to go through the aid station to make sure you don't knock the water out of the nice volunteer's hand. But that hydration is going to allow you to maintain the pace you're trying to hit throughout the rest of the race. So yes, please, please um fuel and hydrate according to your needs, not according to somebody who tells you that it's going to only slow you down if you have to um, make those stops. And I will say, you know, depending on your strategy and, you know, your proficiency with fueling during a race, if you're carrying your fuel and hydration with you, you're not slowing at all. Like you're carrying it. You're not slowing your pace whatsoever. Um, So yes, this is terrible advice. If you need fuel and hydration, you should take it no matter where you are in the race. It's not going to slow you down. In fact, it's probably going to just make you have a better, faster race overall. All right. Some more bad advice when it comes to injury is that foam rolling will help your injury. So this is not an episode about foam rolling. 
foam rolling definitely has its own set of benefits. That's not what we're talking about here, but you should never foam roll a muscle that is actively inflamed. So if you have a, like my hamstring is sore and, you know, inflamed and, and it's a problem, don't, don't mash at it with the foam roller. <laughs> Same with the percussion massager. Don't take your hypervolt and hypervolt the absolute crap out of your really sore calf. That's not helpful, right? That you are you, the the that muscle, that area of your body is already inflamed and mashing at it with a foam roller or a percussion massager is not going to help. What you can do instead is you can foam roll or percussion massage the muscles around it, right? Or above or and below the on the kinetic chain. So what does this mean? Pretend you're a marionette, right? All the strings are attached to things. And so you think above and below. So what's above your calf? Um, your hamstring. What's below your calf? Your foot. So above and below the kinetic chain. Um, but if you are trying to actively foam roll or percussion massage an inflamed muscle, hold on, let it, let the inflammation calm down. Um, it's only going to possibly make things worse and at the very least just be really uncomfortable. This piece of advice is not really, I have not seen somebody advocate or recommend this advice, but somebody out there is saying it because I get a fair number of questions about this. And that question is, um, or the advice is about actively engaging your core when you run, as in, should I actively engage my core when I run? Should you actively like flex your abdominal muscles when you're running? No, your core is engaged. Your core is engaged by the act of running. I don't know if you have ever watched any professional races um, with, um, it tends to be, you know, men tend to wear singlets, right? But I'm thinking for women, if they're wearing um, like a, a cropped uh, uniform where you can see their abs, right? And sometimes you see what looks like their abdominal muscles flexing as they're running. They are not actively like thinking clench, 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 clench. Their, their abdominal muscles are simply activating and responding and contracting and relaxing compared based on the demands of their stride and their run. It's not a conscious movement. They're not consciously flexing, flexing, flexing. Um, you do not need to actively engage your core when you run. In fact, if you can, or sorry, if you do, if you have been, that can cause problems of its own from restricting the natural movement of your diaphragm, which is what allows your lungs to breathe, um, your lungs to breathe. What, it's what allows you to breathe by making sure that your lungs inflate. So it can interfere with your diaphragm's natural movement. It can cause like weird cramps, right? So if you're thinking, oh, I need to actively engage my muscles and then you end up with a side stitch or a cramp in your side. Um, I know we didn't cover exercise associated transient abdominal pain, which is, which is the science name for side stitches, ETAP. Um, but, uh, yes. Yeah, so no, you should not be actively engaging your abdominals. And I think there's, we talk a lot about your core engaging, engaging your core, making sure your core is engaged. And that's more about, you know, are you actively clenching your butt when you run? Are you actively clenching or, you know, flexing your hamstrings or contracting your calves? Or, no, um, it's they're they're working. They are contracting and relaxing based on what you're trying to do, which is run. Your core, all the muscles that make up your core are doing the exact same thing, whether or not, or actually, you know, despite the fact that you're not consciously thinking about it. So, um, you know, for runners, one of the best tools that we have, one of the best assets that we have is a strong core, a huge part of our energy expenditure when we run, because we are upright, is that we have to hold ourselves upright. And having a strong core is an essential part of that. So if you have been worried about your core strength or wondering if you're, you know, maybe your your core or parts of your abdominal, you know, your, your obliques or maybe your lower core is, or your lower back is sore after especially longer or harder runs, that could be a sign that this just think of it as normal muscle soreness. You just are experiencing it in your core muscles because they were fatigued just like any, you know, a muscle, muscles in your legs would get fatigued because you asked them to work hard 
and then they got fatigued and they and now they are sore just like any other muscle group becomes sore when you work it very very hard so if you are experiencing something like that in your writing and you're thinking yeah you know when i do my threshold workouts like <laughs> i actually give you a really good example when i ran my fall marathon last year um my my core like it felt for Part of my post-race soreness was it felt like I'd done a thousand crunches, like my abs were sore. (laughs) And I can promise you I was not flexing my abs um, in that race. I was just trying to hold myself upright. Yes. So that is like normal muscle soreness that I experienced because my, my core was working super hard. That's one example, but you can experience that same, you know, post-workout soreness in your abs, even after, you know, something that isn't as intense as a marathon. So if you are experiencing soreness in your abs and your, your abs are really fascinating. Actually, you say abs, your core, your core is actually, this is totally a little side note. Your core is way, way, way more than just your abs. So apologies to any medical professionals who've been listening to this thinking, she keeps saying abs and she ha- she means core. Your core is basically all of the muscles that you think about basically right below your nipples, wherever those are, uh, and all the way down to kind of the top of your, your pelvic, your pubic region there, all the way wrapping around your body. If you were to wrap yourself in a roll of wrapping paper, that whole section of your body is your actual core. So it's all of the muscles, whether they are superficial, which means kind of on the surface, right? Or deep ones that you'll never see or be able to consciously flex, um, that those muscles all make up what your core is. And if you're sitting upright right now or walking or running, your core is engaged, whether or not you are consciously flexing one or any part of those muscle groups. And I'm thinking right now, like, I don't, I mean, I, I can't flex my obliques. That doesn't happen. I mean, I can kind of, you know, I can, I can flex the muscles in the front of my, of my abdomen, uh, the ones we traditionally think of when we think of our core. But like I said, our core is much more than that. It wraps all the way around the back of our body, stabilizes us, keeps us upright. No, you do not need to actively contract your core when you run. And if you have been, you'll probably be relieved to learn you don't have to. <laughs> Um, kind of as an aside, not even piece of advice, but like a, a myth is that, you know, it's really important for you to have low body fat or visible abs to become a fast runner. And obviously that's just not true. Runners come in all shapes and sizes, and you cannot predict what somebody's speed is like just by looking at them and somebody's presence or absence of visible abdominal muscles has absolutely no bearing on their fitness as a runner. And obviously on this podcast, we talk a lot about the fact that you need to nourish your body. Bodies come in all shapes and sizes. You cannot tell somebody's level of fitness based on what they look like and chasing smaller body size um, is not going to be a path to PRs and there are many risks along the way. And so I know it can be frustrating sometimes when you feel like you see all the people you see who are really fast look a certain way, but I, one of the things I've been thinking, I'm thinking about this a lot recently. And one thing I think is really interesting, and I mean this in a way that is 100% body neutral. I am not at all judging or, you know, commenting on this at all. But what I think is really interesting is that we tend to look at the people who are the faster people in a race or, you know, who are competitive or elite runners and assign and say, you know, well, they have all this one relatively specific body type. They all kind of look the same. Um, What I think is interesting is that there are a whole bunch of other people who also look like that, who couldn't finish a 5k. So you don't have to look a certain way to run a certain way and looking a certain way is no guarantee of how fast you are capable of running. And I feel like we don't talk about that as much, right? Like there are millions of people out there, I'm sure with visible abs who can't run a 5k. That's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I'm saying that what you look like does not predict your running ability. So I want you to remember that when we talk about the diversity of body shapes and sizes is that even though you may see one type of body overrepresented in the higher levels of our sport, um, having that body does not, one, that's, there are probably some genetic predispositions there. We do know that a lot of runners have come out recently and talked about their experience with disordered eating and being unhealthily, um, trying to maintain that kind of body look. But also just looking that way does not mean you're going to run like that. (laughs) Not at all.
And the last piece of bad running advice I'm going to talk about is more of a philosophical contemplation about what it means to be your best running self. And this advice is that there is a very specific kind of training that every person needs to do in order to train for X goal, right? So, oh, if you are training for this goal, you must run this much, this volume. If you are trying to exceed this time, you must run this many times per week at this volume. You know, if you if you want to run a marathon, if you, you have to run 70 miles a week, if you want all of these things, right? Um, and my goodness, at this point, I hope you know that the answer to what your question is, is almost always going to be, it depends because you are an individual person who is unique. Yes, there are general guidelines for some things, right? There are best practices. There are things that we know tend to be true that you need to train more, run more for a half marathon than you do for a 10K, right? That you running a marathon requires typically more training than a half marathon. That running is cumulative, that what you do now will hopefully build up over the years of training. Nothing happens overnight. That it's important that you strength train. It's important that you do, you know, a lot of your runs at an easy effort and you sprinkle in intensity in a really specific way. We know all of these things that are, we know these result in where we're trying to get to, but how it's applied to you specifically as a runner, there is no one size fits all answer. So if you've had somebody say, oh, you're trying to do this, this is the only way that you'll be able to reach your goal. That's not true. I have come across runners who have some of the most amazing experiences and stories about the things they've been able to accomplish on what I would call relatively untraditional training practices, but it works for them. It may seem like when we're training for endurance events and, and it may seem like more is always better, that we're always encouraging you to run more and run more often and run longer distances and increase your volume. And for most people, being able to run more or run more frequently will help them reach their goals. But to a point, there was always a point at which it's too much. More is better until it's not. There is a threshold beyond which that more is actually worse for you. What we're trying to do in this process is figure out what that point is. And sometimes it takes a while. Some people actually have a relatively high training tolerance. They don't really figure that out until they start increasing their volume and realize, wow, I can actually handle 60 miles per week. I have no idea. Some people are really comfortable at 25 miles per week and going beyond that just doesn't work for them because they start to break down or they simply don't have the time, right? So to say that, oh, in order to accomplish these goals, you must train in this very specific way is simply bad advice. There are, like I said, many ways to achieve the goals you want to achieve. Yes, we're going to start with the best practices, um, but there are, of course, always situations where it depends and things that work for the general population might not work as well for you. And that's what I love about coaching is that each athlete is different and responds differently to different things. Each athlete is like a puzzle to put together and figure out what, you know, specifically works for them. Before I did this, actually, I was considering um, becoming a clinical psychologist. My background is um, in psychology, and that's what I, I just kind of assumed I was going to become a psychologist because for me, the greatest puzzle, the greatest mystery, and you guys know I love solving mysteries and answering questions and figuring out things, right? That's why I do this, is that for me, the greatest mystery, the greatest puzzle was the human, was the mind, right? Was the human, <laughs> the person. Why are you doing this? Let's try to figure out why. Um and running has allowed me to extend that not only to kind of the mental aspect of training, but of course now a lot with the physical side, the exercise science of, of training and, and running. But this is, this is, each of us is unique. And like I said, yes, we're all human and there are going to be some best practices. And in most cases, we're going to go with this way. There is no one size fits all when it comes to the things you're trying to do. This may seem a little crazy to you who don't know much about the elite running world, but Kira D'Amato, who is one of now the all-stars in the uh, U.S. women's running community, she holds the American women's half marathon record. She's in her late 30s. She has an amazing story where she ran in college when she was younger, then took a whole bunch of time off, and she got married and had kids and like had a full-time job as a realtor, and then decided to give profession, you know, give high-level running a chance again, and she is just destroying uh, the scene 
she runs what we call relatively modest mileage for being an elite marathoner. She runs roughly in the 80 mile per week range when most other elite marathoners of her caliber are running in the 110 to 120 mile per week range. So she is running 75% of their volume. Now, if you were to say elite runners can only be elite if they run triple digit miles per week, clearly that's not true, right? So think about all the ways that we she is breaking the mold and individualizing her training for what works for her and not listening to what the common advice that conventional wisdom would be about how an elite runner should train. So when you were thinking about what might work best for you, yes, like I said, there are some best practices. There are some things that you can't get around, like spending enough time on feet in order to be able to finish the distance you're trying to accomplish, and also depending on what your goals are. But there are a lot of ways to go about training that makes you happy and makes you a fulfilled person and also gets you to where you want to be that isn't fitting you into a box where, like I said, you must run X miles per week and this many times per week in order to reach your goals. No, no, that's not how it works. We're all a little bit different and that's okay. So that's it. I mean, I'm sure there's some really, truly terrible advice out there that I didn't cover. Some of some of the advice that I saw was so bad, like it, it's almost not even worth addressing. Like I, can't, like I said, I can't really tell the difference between if this is a troll or a genuinely just pat, bad piece of advice. Um, so I hope you have a wonderful holiday weekend. It is a three-day weekend here in the U.S., the beginning of July uh, for Independence Day. And we are going to be back next week with our guests. I have a really wonderful slate of guests lined up on a variety of topics that I hope you will enjoy learning from. Until next time, happy running. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.